0: This is 15 Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and anyone interested in history, featuring the minds and voices of the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome to 15 Minute History. I'm your host, Alina Scott, a doctoral candidate in the Department of History at UT Austin. And today we are talking about the history of the U.S.-Mexico border with Professor C.J. Alvarez. Prof. Alvarez, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Prof. Alvarez is an assistant professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latino Latina Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. He writes and teaches about the history of the U.S.-Mexico border and environmental history, His first book, which we will be talking about today, Borderland, Border Water, A History of Construction on the U.S.-Mexico Divide, is a history of the built world of the U.S.-Mexico borderline. This book is the winner of the Vernacular Architecture Forum's Abbott Lowell Cummings Award, given annually to the newly published book that has made the most significant contribution to the study of vernacular architecture and cultural landscapes of North America, Prof. Alvarez, thank you again for being here. I'm super excited to talk to you because I just finished your book um, and it was so interesting. And It brought up so many questions, especially considering the border is in the news so frequently these days. Um, But your book is about large construction projects on the U.S.-Mexico border. Can you give us a few examples of what these projects are?
1: Sure. I'll give you three examples examples of building projects that I write about in the book that might not be familiar to most listeners. The first one is remote army patrol roads in the 1910s. not something we typically think about when we think about uh, border construction or even even border history. But if we look back to the uh, to the decade of the Mexican Revolution from 1910 to 1920, what we find, At its peak in 1917 was 160,000 troops deployed by the U.S. government to the Mexican border, which is eight times larger than the U.S. Border Patrol is today. And Those troops operated uh, a a range of remote patrols. They were hybrid uh, uh, kinds of expeditions that comprised both newly invented trucks and planes but also animals, so mule trains. And they traveled through these remote destinations throughout the, the US-Mexico border region on this elaborate system of dirt roads. In the book, I focus in particular on the remote roads in the Big Bend region of West Texas. And the point I'm trying to make with this is that access roads are a crucial dimension of his, uh, in history of border policing that is often overlooked. The second example I would point to is uh, what was called the Rio Grande Rectification Project in the 1930s. Rectification, in this case, meaning straightening. This took place outside the cities of El Paso, Texas, and Ciudad Juarez, Chihuahua. At the time, the river had a lot of bends in it, as rivers tend to do, especially desert rivers like the Rio Grande. It meandered through the desert flats, and this created uh, flooding as well. So partly as a flood control project, border builders moved 6 million cubic yards of dirt to shorten and straighten the river in this particular location. And when they were done, they had actually removed 67 miles of river. So the river itself by the end of this was shorter. This also made it a more legible border. And so this I use as an example to point to how environmental engineering projects such as this also made the river easier to patrol and police by border police in this time, and the final example I would give among the uh, among the many I uh, discuss in the book is Amistad Dam that was completed in 1969. This is a very large concrete storage dam. And it was built as a joint project between the United States and Mexico. It's half in one country, half in the other, half designed by Mexican engineers, half designed by American engineers. Same thing with the workers that actually built the project itself. And I think this is possibly the best example of U.S.-Mexico border collaboration anywhere you're going to find on the entire line.
0: So I want to get to this idea of control, especially as it comes to uh, control of the environment, but... Before I do that, I want to talk about the term border region that you use a lot in your book. So when people think about the border, they often envision either immigration and customs inspections at ports of entry or the physical border wall. But in the book, you expand this frame of analysis by talking about a broader border region. Can you talk about why you use the term border region more often than simply the border?
1: Yeah, like you say, I almost never use the term border or, or, or the border to describe this place, this very complex and, and heterogeneous place uh, of the U.S.-Mexico border region. If you look at the frontispiece of my book, you will find a very complicated and I think very beautiful map. When I was writing this book, I uh, and, and processing the final manuscript and going through like just multiple, multiple edits and. Um, And trying to bring it to fruition from a manuscript to an actual book, I kept track of every single place name that I mentioned in the entire thing. And not just towns and cities and states, but also mountain ranges, rivers and their tributaries, entire ecosystems, and then, of course, the big infrastructure projects that I talk about in the book. And I give this list to my genius map maker, graduate student named Josh Conrad at the School of Architecture. And I said, Josh, can, can you fit all this onto a single map? And he said, I'll try. And he did. And he succeeded with, with flying colors. And, um, and this map is intended as a guide to readers. To consult as they read because I, I don't know how many times I've been reading a, a history book and and the author is just mentioning place name after place name after place name and I'm just going back and forth to google to try to figure out what, where where are we in this story and so I wanted to 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 use this map as a way of um as a as a guide to readers but this map is also intended to make a deeper argument when we talk about the border We are only referencing a political division, uh, 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 which started as an arbitrary political division between two nation states, but the history of the region is a complex interaction between not just political developments, but also natural environments and also built environments. And so when I say border region throughout this book, what I'm trying to do is emphasize that border history is always a delicate balance between these macroscopic stories of US Mexico relations and how these two countries meet on an international divide but also multiple regionally specific histories throughout this in, this in, this vast swath of territory that runs for 2000 miles from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico.
0: So throughout the book you talk a lot about the natural world, in addition to the built environment, would you categorize your book as an environmental history?
1: I wouldn't call it environmental history. I, 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 I want. I think it. I, I hope it speaks to environmental historians. The, in my research, I, it became very clear to me as I researched the history of border construction from the point of view of border builders themselves that they had a very specific kind of environmental knowledge. And I don't mean that they were conservationists or preservationists or environmentalists the way we would typically think about it, but they had a very deep understanding of the composition of the earth and the movement of water, geology and hydrology. And I often say when I talk about this that anyone who's ever tried to build anything outside knows what I'm talking about. Even if it's just a fence or a shed or an addition to your house, you have to really, really have an understanding of, uh, of, of what kind of soil you're working with, what kind of rainfall you get in that region, how water moves. And, um, and so I tried to see the natural world through their eyes in an effort to tell this history of border building and pay attention to how they articulated the challenges they, they, they experienced building out there in these multiple ecosystems on on the US Mexico in what's now the US Mexico border region. I also tried to pay attention to how they expressed certain prejudices toward ecosystems, particularly deserts. And this aspect of the research gave me the idea for my current book project, which I've been working on now for a couple of years, which is a history of the Chihuahuan Desert, the largest cross-border ecosystem on the US-Mexico divide. And the idea that I'm working on now in my current work is to write an environmental history that, that like a, that starts from the point of view of environmental history of this cross-border ecosystem as an attempt to rethink how we approach border history in general.
0: That's really fascinating. Kind of to go back to what we were talking about a little bit earlier, this idea of control. One of the key ideas in border history is the idea of control. And this theme comes up a lot in your book. Um, Can you talk more about um, how you think examining construction projects helps us understand this meaning of of control?
1: So in the very simplest terms, police, there's this long history of police and and military patrols on the U.S.-Mexico border in the border region. Police and military building have been designed to control the movement of people and goods. Hydraulic engineering, that is water construction projects, have been designed to control the course of rivers and indeed of nature itself. So while Many other historians have focused on legal and policy history on the border and how that has expressed itself coercively, how it's expressed to sort of a nationalist ideology, how the concept of race and ethnicity in the United States and foreignness and and otherness is embedded in those kinds of border policies. I tried to explore how these ideas manifested in the built environment. And also while other historians have explored dam building and and irrigation construction projects in the context of arid lands history in the Mexican North and in the American West, I tried to explain how hydraulic engineering unfolded on the border. And so to me, the payoff of of thinking about the concept of control through both land and water on the U.S.-Mexico divide is you can start to see connections between the the building projects that were meant to control the movement of people and the building projects that were meant to control the movement of of nature and so this was all an effort in short to reframe how we think about the concept of control on the US Mexico divide not just in terms of of people migrants smuggling black markets those types of things but also the natural world and i think you'll find if you if you find yourself reading my book at, at some point, there are these really surprising connections between hydraulic engineering projects and then border policing projects that just that never ceased to amaze me as they unfolded. The more I looked, the deeper those connections became in ways that are fundamentally distinct, I think, from policing projects in the interior of Mexico and in the United States and from hydraulic engineering projects uh, elsewhere in, in Mexico and the United States.
0: So I noticed you haven't really mentioned the border fence or the border wall that everybody's been talking about for the last decade, maybe, um, even though you know that is the the construction project that most people are familiar with. Um, where do you think recent attempts to fortify the U.S.-Mexico border fit into this longer history that you write about um, of border construction?
1: So Alina, you're a historian too, so so you know that when that when a historian thinks of recent I think of the past 30 years, not the past four years, which I think is most people's point of reference in this regard. So the first large-scale heavy border fences started to be constructed in Southern California in the early 1990s. And these these barricades rapidly expanded after the 2006 Secure Fence Act. And in the aggregate, these border barricades, these multiple fence-building projects starting in the 1990s, Constitute a mega project, or or what we what how we refer to construction projects that cost over a billion dollars, just a massive, massive construction undertaking. And I make two points about this in the book. The first point is there were actually two mega projects that unfolded in the U.S.-Mexico border region from the nineteen nineties up to the present day. One is the fence, which we all know too well. But the other, going back to this idea all the way to the to the to the patrol roads of the 1910s and even before, the other mega project that unfolded on the border that's much less visible, much less photogenic, is the expansion of transportation infrastructure in the context of the free trade agreement in, in 1994, which of course they were building in anticipation of, uh, even as uh, even as far back as the 80s, and even before I think. So, what this meant is that existing ports of entry were dramatically expanded to accommodate more truck traffic coming across the border. New ports of entry were created out of thin air, which also meant highway spurs and what we call NAFTA lanes, and then the the increased uh, just highway construction leading up to the border on the Mexican side and on the US side. And to give you an example of this, just in the, in the case of Texas, where, of course, we have a water border with Mexico, we've got 28 vehicle border bridges between Texas and the Mexican states of Chihuahua, Coahuila, Nuevo León, and Tamaulipas. And since 1990, 27 of the 28 have been expanded, improved, or built absolutely from scratch. And so this is all taking place at the same time as border barricades are taking place in these more remote regions. And so in order to understand the current, and again, by current, I mean the 30-year-old border fence, you also have to understand that it's not the only building project that was taking place, not the only mega project that was taking place on the U.S.-Mexico divide. The other point I make about the recent recent history since the 90s is that for most of border Construction history. Building projects have been tailored to a specific local or regional context. This is most obvious in the context of dams, obviously, because the site selection um, is, is a complex thing. You can't just build a dam anywhere. It has to have the right geology. It has to, it has to make sense in terms of the, the topography and the hydrology of a, of a given river system. But this is also the case even with early smaller-scale fencing projects on the western border, where, but the western land border, that is, where um, barbed wire fences were put up in specific places in the context of an animal quarantine and based on a foot-and-mouth disease outbreak in Mexico in 1947. And so they used this local input from, uh, from the Bureau of Animal Industry and Agriculture on the Mexican side. To say, all right, so wh- where would we want to put these animal barriers? Uh, who could, since there's no river dividing the two countries, then wander across the wander across the the line. In contrast, since the 1990s, the time of the big fence construction, border policing policy, border construction po- policy has been propelled by national level politics, by by politicians who have never really been to the border, who aren't from border states and who don't really understand the, the landscape, the culture, the people, or the, the literal physical spaces of, of where the border is and, and what goes on there. And so I think that's one of the most important things to recognize about the shift that was certainly exaggerated in the past four years, but was building on this national level preoccupation of the border and construction projects that's really been with us for most of my students' lives, which 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 creates a real a real teaching challenge because they grew up in a time when they they think that that's just the way it is, and so one of the one of the challenges I I, I hope I rise to the occasion of in, in my border history class is to defamiliarize this thirty year present for my students. And explain to them just how anomalous that is—not just in terms of construction projects, but also where the impetus for those construction projects is coming from.
0: So you're saying the border looked different 30 years ago?
1: I am saying that, and and I and I am lucky enough to remember it. And and I remember um, I I was in North Dakota a few years ago. This is kind of an aside, and uh, and I drove to the Manitoba the North Dakota border to see what it looked like, because I haven't spent a lot of time on the U S Canada border. And it looks like a little kiosk where they inspect, you know, like they check papers and, um, and, you know, agricultural goods and that sort of thing. But aside from that, there's no patrols out in the, out on the landscape. There's no, there's no fences, there's no razor wire, there's no AWACS, there's no surveillance, you know, system to speak of. And I think that many people remember a time Uh, many people alive remember a time when the U S Mexico border was not that different. It certainly um, has always had a tension built into it, that the U S Canada border has not. But, um, but the extent to which the U S Mexico border is this massive, massive construction project, the accumulation and accretion of really 160 years of momentum that, that, the extent of that is a very new thing, both in terms of uh, of police infrastructure, but also trade infrastructure.
0: Okay, my last question: What drew you to this topic to write about the the border region?
1: Well, I'll tell you what didn't draw me to it, and that's current events. Uh, you know, a lot of people have commented since the book came out how relevant the book is. And I will tell you that I, I grew up in southern New Mexico myself, and my family has been there since the 1860s when they came from Mexico. And for border dwellers like us, the region and its history has always been relevant. Um, it, whether or not like the, the, the dynamics of international border policy actually affected our day-to-day lives or not, just living in the desert, living in a place that um, – that is atypical for both Mexico and the United States has always been a, a source of relevance and familiarity to me. And so I wrote the book to speak to the broader discipline of history, no doubt about it. And I've been really honored that it's been well-received by, by various groups of, of people and historians. But I also wrote the book for border people. And one of the, um, one of the most satisfying experiences I've had since the book came out is border people from all across the line coming up to me, writing me emails saying, like, I recognize these, these places. I recognize this stuff that just seems like concrete and steel, like aside from the border fence, that just seems like this, this quotidian infrastructure. That's just kind of around, but, um, but, I tried as hard as I could to breathe some kind of narrative life and historical context into those very banal features of of border infrastructure such that it would be recognizable for people who are familiar with the border and also um, familiarize people who have not spent a lot of time on the US-Mexico divide with just how complicated the built environment, but also the natural world of the border region is.
0: So, I actually have one more question. Um, for our listeners who many of our listeners are teachers and students at varying educational levels, um, what's one thing you would like them to take away from either your book or, you know, a conversation about um, the current u uh, s Mexico border?
1: I think it's really important when you when you approach border history and when you try to teach border history, to distinguish between border dwellers and long distance migrants. Both are really important and and oftentimes they intersect, but oftentimes they don't. And by border dweller, I mean people who have been in places like El Paso, Texas, which has been there for hundreds of years, uh, people who've been in, in Matamoros, uh, you know, Brownsville area, places where people have been for hundreds of years, certainly from indigenous point of view. Um, in a lot of these places, people have been, there's been sustained occupation for um, for thousands of years. And that rootedness in place and the specific geographic and cultural context of border dwellers is so much more interesting than a policy discussion and so much more deeply meaningful to for border people and desert people who define their sense of self and community and belonging in the world according to these these very difficult and and harsh environments that um, through which this relatively recent addition of the US-Mexico border cuts. and Then you have long distance migrants, that is people coming from the interior of Mexico for most of the 20th century, People coming from Central America, people coming from Africa, people coming from all over the world, passing through Mexico, crossing the US-Mexico border as a waypoint, and in so doing, encountering the apparatus of the state, encountering immigration policy and enforcement, and then if they're lucky, getting past it somehow, either by being granted asylum or, or making it in the country. And then going somewhere else to Chicago, to LA, to the Carolinas, to wherever they they have family or think they can make, um, think they can they get some traction um, economically or just in terms of personal safety. And for them, the border is a very crucial waypoint in a much larger journey. And oftentimes, these two histories are are kind of passing side by side and and aren't necessarily connected with one another. So that's the distinction that I like to make to people. And that's something I'd like to leave, especially teachers with is, is not to say one is right or wrong, or one is, is more important than the other, but to recognize that, that there are two registers, I think that it's useful to talk about the U S Mexico border region, the register of the super local and the, and the, the the sustained inhabitation, and then the register of the waypoint in a longer journey.
0: Well, thank you so much, Professor Alvarez, for joining us today.
1: You're very welcome. It was great to be here. Thanks for the invitation.
0: And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more, we have more resources on our website and a link to Professor Alvarez's book. And if you haven't already, follow us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at 15 Minute History and like and review us on Apple Podcasts. That's it for the show. 15-Minute History is produced at the University of Texas at Austin in partnership with Not Even Past and Hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, follow us on social media, and visit our website for more information and resources. See y'all next week.